Welcome back to the Free Mind Podcast, where we discuss philosophic and political ideas with adventurous disregard for intellectual trends. I'm Shiloh Brooks from the Benson Center for the Study of Western Civilization at the University of Colorado at Boulder. I'm joined today by Jeremy Fortier, postdoctoral fellow at the City College of New York. Jeremy is the author of the 2020 book, The Challenge of Nietzsche, published by the University of Chicago Press. Our conversation today explores the thought and writings of 19th century German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. We discuss Nietzsche's popular appeal, his complicated legacy, his criticism of the Western tradition, his style of writing, and the basic problems his philosophy confronts. Jeremy Fortier, welcome to the Free Mind Podcast. Thank you for having me. I thought I would have you on for the following reason. This is going to be a slightly self-indulgent uh, episode. You have recently written a book called The Challenge of Nietzsche. And I wrote a book called Nietzsche's Culture War. And we're both interested in Nietzsche. You wrote on the older Nietzsche. I wrote on the younger Nietzsche. And we were talking before we started recording. I was immediately attracted to Nietzsche in my youth. You had some resistance to him. So I feel like we bring a lot of perspectives to uh, the question of who Nietzsche was. So why don't we start for folks who have never read Nietzsche, maybe heard this name, but don't really know much about him. Who was Nietzsche? Well, Nietzsche was completely <laughs> obscure during his life, or very obscure for most of his life, and subsequently became pretty much the best-selling philosopher in history and pretty much one of the best-selling authors in history. And he became, well, let's, let's do a, a short rundown of that. So Nietzsche was a German, born, actually, I'm not going to remember the exact year that he was born, but his career as 1844. Young, good, 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 good. <laughs> 1844. Began his life in the German education system as part of the kind of, kind of elite part of the German education system. Became a very young tenured professor, I think at the age of 24 and the university of, at the University of Basel in Switzerland. Trained as a philologist, which just means a scholar of the classical world. Did not fit in there very well. And so kind of happily retired, partly due to health reasons and partly because he wasn't fitting in very well as a philologist, therefore had a small pension and spent the remainder of the next couple of decades of his life traveling around different parts of Europe, especially in Switzerland and Italy, a little bit in southern France, writing books that almost no one bought. Uh, he had to self-publish them towards the end of his life. He suffers a mental collapse. He was institutionalized for the last 10 years of his life. During that time, he suddenly becomes one of the most popular authors in Europe. After his death, which I believe is the year 1900, after his death, he goes from being widely read to literally one of probably the most famous names in all of Europe, becoming very closely associated with a lot of German politicians and German militarism, to be blunt, to be blunt about it. And that goes both through the First World War and the Second World War. And so Nietzsche goes on to be both one of the most widely read and one of the most notorious in both good and bad ways, philosophers and authors in the modern age and perhaps any age. Yeah, we need to talk about a lot that you just said. So you mentioned he's one of the most popular philosophers, went from obscurity to popularity quickly, that he became one of the most sort of notorious philosophers. But one thing that stuck with me with respect to what you said was, when we talk about Nietzsche, we talk about how your reaction to him is usually either sort of immediately positive or immediately negative. There's not much of an in-between. You know, people aren't undecided or neutral toward Nietzsche. 
And so I wanted to to ask you, you know, what was it? Because as I understand it, you were initially somewhat resistant to Nietzsche, whereas I was initially electrified by him. And he has this effect on young people in particular, one way or the other. And so what do you think it is about Nietzsche? And you can take yourself as an example that elicits either an immediately positive or immediately negative reaction. What's the character of his writing such that it does that? So, yeah, the first thing to say is that he's a really exceptional writer. And I think there's no doubt that he's not just one of the best writers among philosophers. He's one of the most gripping writers, period, in pretty much any language. But his writing, particularly some of the later works, which is what I first encountered as, a, as an undergraduate student, have this character of having a very extreme and somewhat hyperbolic rhetoric. And so for me as a student, what made me resist Nietzsche and, and really not actually want to continue reading him, I encountered him in one of your standard introductory uh, history of political philosophy courses. Nietzsche was, we read a little bit at the end of that course. And what made me resist him was that I didn't understand the seeming hyperbole, almost bordering on hysteria. And that's what I resisted, was I wasn't sure, I think as someone said, it's like Nietzsche is shouting in his mm -hmm. writing. Like, you know it's very good writing. You can tell it's really gripping and, and great phrases and all that, but it's like he's shouting. And I couldn't understand, well, why is this guy shouting at me? And I don't, <laughs> you know, I don't really want to shout back. So that's, that's what made me resist him. And I suspect that's true of others as well. It's the seeming extremism or hyperbole, hysteria. You can recognize that he's a great writer, but it's not going to be everyone's cup of tea at first. Right. And yeah. so you warmed up to him, though. And I would say the, the things that Jeremy just said, I agree with. Although the uh, sensationalizing rhetoric of Nietzsche, rather than turning me off, turned me on. I wanted, I, yeah. wanted to, yeah. I wanted to gobble that up. I'd never heard anyone talk like that. And so it can have both effects, perhaps, depending on the disposition of the reader. But I'm interested in your case because eventually you came around to him. And I'm curious what it is in his thought or what it was about his thought that made you come around and say, you know what, this guy's shouting, but it's actually worth listening to. Yeah. So Nietzsche, it's interesting. He has a letter where he said to a correspondent, it's no trick to find me, but it's difficult to lose me. Right. And I think that's really true. Once, you know, I had this sort of negative reaction. I wound up, though, taking a seminar on Nietzsche, almost against my will. It was taught by a professor that I, uh, I liked. I had taken other courses from him. So I was going to take, I just sort of, sort of committed to taking more courses from him. I was disappointed when he decided to teach Nietzsche one semester. But I wound up spending a whole a semester on Nietzsche. And what impressed me is we worked through it. And we worked, we went through one book of Nietzsche's, Beyond Good and Evil. We went through it in real detail, almost line by line. What impressed me as I spent a lot of time on it, was that I realized that underneath all this kind of bombast and seeming hysteria, Nietzsche not only qualifies some of his major claims, but there's a lot of self-criticism and even self-doubt. And so that really intrigued me once I realized that, because I realized on the one hand, you have this guy who's willing to kind of shout and boast and seem so grandiose and insult almost everyone and make a spectacle of himself. But then when you read it and you get under the sort of the surface of it, there's a lot of self-criticism, self-reflection, self-doubt. So that intrigued me, was thinking about how do these two things fit together, particularly because with a lot of authors, it might be the reverse. You, I, I was more used to authors who are more qualified on the surface, and underneath that, a philosopher might be a bit more assertive underneath the sort of qualified surface. And Nietzsche is really this reverse. And so that kind of intrigued me, was how do those things fit together, the mixture of the bombast, but then the kind of more quiet self-criticism, self-reflection. Yeah, right. That makes sense. Yeah. And uh, that seems like a, a sound pathway into his work. 
we should probably tell people a little bit about his work. It occurs to me. I want to talk broadly about his position uh, or his place, his legacy in the Western tradition, where he stands, how he views other writers. But I think before we do that, it might be useful to just say, what are the problems Nietzsche is confronting? He's well known for a few slogans, slogans like the eternal return, the will to power, the overman or the superman. But more, maybe more broadly than that, what are the fundamental problems? You know, we could talk about Nietzsche and Christianity. We could talk about Nietzsche and classical philosophy. But if you had to sum up in a handful, sort of what are the problems in the history of Western thought that Nietzsche is grappling with, how would you sum that up? Well, I might pick one of his slogans and kind of unpack it a bit, which I think gets at a lot of what you mentioned. And the, the slogan that I think I would pick is the death of God, right? That's a slogan that appears in Nietzsche's work. And in, in two places, there are characters, not Nietzsche himself, but characters who say God is dead, right? And, and not only that, but in, in Thus Spoke Zarathustra, Zarathustra says, haven't you heard that God is dead? Which is important because it's not only an assertion about an empirical fact, and this is what I want to now unpack. The death of God isn't, it's not a statement of random personal atheism. It's a claim about civilization or culture. And it's the idea that we live in a world in which our God or gods have died, which means not simply that people believe in the, the Christian God a bit less, but that there's a crisis of meaning. The things that people formally thought give our existence meaning, our ability to believe in those things is somehow not as strong as it was. And there's this, this process of, of kind of the meaning of things seems to be sapped in all corners of life. And the death of God is a kind of metaphor for that. I mean, Nietzsche is certainly concerned with the Christian God and belief in the Christian God and the biblical God more generally. And in fact, just belief in God in general. But the death of God isn't only about that. It's about the fact that there seems to be a crisis of meaning and the things that have formally given meaning to our lives seem to be, that, that the source of meaning seems to be in doubt in a way that hasn't been in the past. So I think the notion of the death of God really is key for Nietzsche and spreads to all corners of his thought and his assessment of Western philosophy, Western culture. Mm-hmm. And so when you, when you talk about the death of God and the sort of crisis of meaning, this uh, phrase and what you've described it encapsulating seems to resonate especially with young people, oddly. I can't tell if it's that they feel acutely the lack of meaning he describes, if they feel that modernity has been vacated of meaning, and that's why Nietzsche resonates with them. But I'm curious to hear, I mean, you know, you, we've talked about how Nietzsche can be an immediate turnoff. And I can imagine, and I've seen students who, in the wake of Nietzsche's proclamation of the death of God, do find him off-putting. But there's a certain sort of modern youth that's intrigued by that statement. And I wonder if you might say something about the relationship of your students and young people in particular to Nietzsche. Why are they turned on to him? What is it that resonates with them? I, I always tell my students, you know, Nietzsche features in a number of films. If you've ever seen Little Miss Sunshine, right. you know, there's a number, or Clueless from the 90s, the boyfriend is in the swimming pool reading Beyond Good and Evil. So there's something iconic about Nietzsche and that sort of teenage life. And so I wonder if we might be able to reflect for a minute on what it is in his thought that really is hitting at the quick or the core of the modern youth, young viewpoint. 
Yeah, it's a great question, especially, you know, I've noticed this because although I took a number of courses on Nietzsche, have written on Nietzsche, I've actually never taught Nietzsche. And yet in almost every course I've taught, at least one student wants to talk to me about Nietzsche because they know that I've, you know, they've looked me up. They know that I've published something on Nietzsche. And so even though I'm not teaching it to students, <laughs> there's always someone that comes up to me and says, will you talk to me about Nietzsche? I really want to talk about Nietzsche. Right. And so that's, that doesn't happen with anyone else, by the way, at least in my, I don't, I don't get that question about Plato or St. August. I mean, in quite the same way. And I think a big part of it relates to this point about meaning, because I think young people in particular are receptive to and recognize the importance of the question of what gives my life meaning and what gives our life meaning. And I think Nietzsche tapped into that in a way that students don't get that from many other sources. I mean, in our university today, students are not encouraged to think about what's the meaning of what we're doing here, you know, right. in moral terms and metaphysical terms. They're not encouraged to think about that. Nietzsche really presses that question. By the way, this is one reason why Nietzsche's rhetoric, I think, can appeal to people who are not entirely on the same page as him. So, for instance, the death of God statement can intrigue even students who are pretty religious. Right, because some of those students know that those questions about what gives our life meaning are important, and they know that Nietzsche took those questions seriously too. Yeah. Right, so a lot of the irreligion, quote unquote, that they might encounter is pretty shallow or superficial. But with Nietzsche, they encounter someone who really wants to tackle those questions head on. Right, so and then in other cases, you have completely secular students, but they want to know someone who explains what gives my life meaning. And so I think that. The fact that he's so focused on the question of what gives your life meaning, what gives our life culturally meaning, when you combine that with his brilliant rhetoric, I think that's what really draws students in, is he, he honed in quite accurately on the importance of that question of meaning. Yeah, so the question of meaning is certainly central to Nietzsche. For people out there who, who are, have philosophic disposition, you've probably heard the word nihilism. And Nietzsche is his great opponent. Well, he's got a number of great opponents, but one of his great theoretical opponents is nihilism. And this is what Jeremy's talking about when he talks about the crisis of meaning, that the human, well, I think nihilism for Nietzsche can mean two different things. Typically, it seems to mean we can't know what's true or nothing is true. But then there's a secondary meaning in Nietzsche, which is arguably the more profound meaning, which we might be able to touch on later, which is that the human being as such is exhausted. Humanity has degenerated to a point where it wills nothing. It wants to become nothing. It wants to annihilate itself in a certain way. We can get to that maybe a little bit later. I want to drill down now on a couple of things that people notice when they read Nietzsche right off the bat. And you have mentioned these in passing in your, in your remarks so far. And that is Nietzsche is, he strikes, of course, the, the new reader as loud. One of the things that my students always say is that he strikes them as a critic. He's critical. He's, uh, you put it as shouting, but he'll say something, kind of make a comedic or even slanderous remark about Socrates or Jesus. And you don't expect when you read a book that's supposed to be serious to have a man calling these great people names. <laughs> so, right. so I wonder if we might, for people who might read Nietzsche and, you know, see him call a great mind a name, you know, John Stuart Mill, the great flathead or something of this nature, if we might be able to deepen these criticisms. And so, you know, Nietzsche's a, a great critic, maybe the most profound opponent and critic of Christianity ever to have lived. Can you or can we say something about the depth and nature of that criticism? Why is he critical of Christianity? What does he think it's done? He's also remarkably, one should add, 
grateful to Christianity for deepening the human soul. It's, he's not merely a critic. The same is true, and I guess we could just pick, of Plato and Socrates. He seems on the one hand to be a great critic, on the other hand, and at other places to express very deep gratitude. The same is true for Schopenhauer. The same is true for Wagner. And the list goes on and on and on. So I wonder if we might say something about his general critical disposition, but why those criticisms shouldn't be dismissed as sort of offhand Nietzsche name-calling and have some depth to them. Are there any criticisms that he makes that you're particularly interested in? Yeah, so it's a great question, and it is one of the features of his writings that I think really stands out to students is the way that he talks about other people. And that can either, again, compel people or repel them, depending on how they are and how he speaks about people. And in thinking about that, I have to say, Nietzsche himself makes a remark about this in one of his last autobiographical writings about why he writes about other people the way that he does. And it's a remark where Nietzsche kind of justifies himself. And at first, when I read it, I didn't take it that seriously. But the more I've studied Nietzsche, the more I think there's something to this remark. So I want to explain it a bit. He basically says in the remark, look, I am only attacking things that I think have genuine strength to them. I would not attack something unless I thought it was a worthy opponent. And when you read his remarks in isolation, they don't always sound like he thinks he has a worthy opponent, but he tells you, no, I'm only attacking think opponents that I think are worthy opponents. And I think that's really true. And by the way, a beautiful way to, to think about that, he wrote this book, The Twilight of the Idols, where Twilight of the Idols seems to mean things like the death of Christianity, the death of Socrates, whom he attacks right at the start. But if you look at the foreword to that book, the foreword to Twilight of the Idols, he says, here I'm taking aim at eternal idols. So it's this great paradox, the twilight of the idols, but the, the idols that are in twilight are somehow eternal, like there's an eternal appeal to them. And I think Nietzsche really means that. He means when I'm attacking Socrates, which he does right at the start of the book, or when I'm attacking Christianity, as he does even more vigorously throughout the book, I'm attacking idols and things that, yes, in a way I want to help bring them down, but I recognize that there's an eternal appeal, and I'm only picking these idols because I know that in some form, there's something about them that is always going to be legitimately, genuinely attractive, right? And so I think the extremism of his rhetoric is almost, in a way, it's a tribute to the strength of those, those opponents. But I also think, by the way, and this goes to our cultural situation and the question of meaning, Nietzsche thinks that modern people don't really want to put up a fight about anything. And you sort of alluded to this. So I think his rhetoric is trying to tell people, not only are these worthy opponents, but you should want to join the fight, right? Like it's, it's you want to recognize there's something that's worth getting excited about. And he thinks other people aren't getting worked up enough about it. And so he wants to give a rhetoric that encourages people to think this is worth taking on, not just because it's like, a bear clawing to death a little uh, teddy bear, you know, like, or something like that. Yeah. But because this is really a fight worth having, the opponent is worth taking on. So I think that's part of what this rhetoric is trying to get at and why he's willing to be so kind of nasty about Socrates, about Christianity, and all kinds of other things that we might genuinely respect and want to take seriously. Yeah. He wants to tell people, no, but you really got to take this seriously enough to be willing to fight with it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And it, it makes me think of the following thing. People, when I teach Nietzsche, sometimes students will react viscerally to the kinds of criticisms that you've mentioned. And then I tell them something like what you've said about how Nietzsche really only confronts his, his equals. He wants a good opponent. And 
the reason he's, I mean, this sounds arrogant, which we can talk about, and he's just arrogant later, but the reason he attacks, or at least is willing to cross swords with Socrates and Jesus is that he, I mean, I hate to say it, but he thinks he's their equal in a way, that, and that this is a, a profound millennia-long fight. But what's not often recognized with all the sword crossing about Nietzsche is that he also, underneath all the shouting, he considers himself to be, and I think legitimately so, one of the most delicate philosophers, sensitive philosophers of them all. And I have in mind the following thing. He talks often in his writings about dancing and the need to dance and what that might mean metaphorically. And Nietzsche can dance his way, and I mean, I'm talking in a, in a metaphorical way now, sort of ballet dance his way around an argument or a philosopher's doctrine in such a way uh, that it's, he'll call him names and, you know, uh, rain insults, and then he'll point out the most delicate, or he'll provide the most delicate psychological analysis of these thinkers. And it's so rare to find someone with a soul that's as warlike as Nietzsche's, and yet as uh, dancer-like as Nietzsche's. And so I think for people who are who listen to Jeremy and I talk about, well, he's a great critic of Christ, and he thinks he's Christ's equal and all these sorts of things. The thing to know is Nietzsche takes those books very seriously, reads them, and is engaged in a very deep conversation with them. And so I, I think it's, it's wrong to think that he's just a bulldozer, that his place in the Western tradi tradition is that merely of a bulldozer. He's also remarkably sensitive, and often, as I said before, He'll express his gratitude to something like Christianity for deepening the human soul, for providing it with what he calls intellectual probity, a certain sort of honesty that makes truth-seeking even more possible than it might have been for the ancient man, such that post-Christian man is in some ways, for Nietzsche, genealogically or wholly different from the man of the ancient world. Now, that may or may not be true, but nonetheless, he's willing to be grateful to his opponents and to pick them apart in such a way that that makes one think that he's thought so carefully about them, he's not merely dismissing them as out of hand. Do you find that to be an accurate portrayal? Yeah, no, I like that. And I really like bringing up the metaphor of dancing because I think part of what that involves for Nietzsche is that dancing is a way that we learn to negotiate an internal tension. So yeah. like, in other words, we're torn in different directions, you know, we're attracted to Christianity, but repelled to it, as you suggest. We're attracted to Socrates, but repelled by him. And in a way, I think, in a very limited sense, Nietzsche would actually suggest that practices of dancing and, say, cultural practices of dancing can be helpful to people in getting them to live with these internal tensions and thinking about how do you live as a human being knowing that you're torn in different directions. Yeah, this, this, makes, this makes a lot of sense to me. And I think the other thing to say about Nietzsche's you know, sensitivity, a psychological mastery, is on the one hand, he sounds just like he's shouting. On the other hand, he wouldn't have such an effect on you, the reader, if he didn't know how to push your buttons. In other words, he's figured out something beyond mere shouting. His rhetoric is very carefully calculated. Just as, and we haven't mentioned much about this, and perhaps this is the place we should go next, it occurs to me, Nietzsche's aphoristic style. This is unique. I mean, he has really two books of essays, The uh, Untimely Meditations and The Genealogy of Morals. But by and large, the rest of Nietzsche's writings are aphoristic. The exception would be Thus Spoke Zarathustra, which is a, a long poem. But the aphoristic style is unique to Nietzsche. You know, there are a few philosophers in the ancient 
pre-Socratic world in a way who seem to speak in aphorisms, or at least we only have fragments that indicate they were aphoristic in character. You think of people like Pascal. But what do you take from the fact that Nietzsche wrote in aphorisms? And what, how do you, I guess the question that I'm thinking of is, Nietzsche on the one hand shouts a lot. You combine that with this delicacy of soul that I've tried to argue for, the sensitivity, this dancer's precision. And then you add to that the aphorism. And what do you get? <laughs> what does that equation equal? It's a great point. And I would just suggest that, or occurs to me that what you pointed to is the, the sensitivity and adaptability and how he speaks to different readers. What the aphorism does is I think it probably helps with that because he can change voices so much, right? And it's, he becomes harder to pin down. The authorial voice is always switching. Right? So I think that's one virtue of the aphorism for Nietzsche, is it makes him harder to pin down, but in a way that lets him make use of what you, you know, just what you referred to, the sensitivity, the delicacy, the sensitivity to different types of readers. Yeah. It makes his reading his, his, reading his writing very challenging in a way as well, we should say, because Nietzsche, he, he says the following. He says, um, a thought doesn't come when I wish, it comes when it wishes. And the aphorism is a picture of that. The thought comes when Nietzsche, not when Nietzsche wishes, when it wishes. And so you can be reading Nietzsche, if you read some of his, his middle works and even works like Beyond Good and Evil, and you think, what the heck does aphorism 27 have to do with 28? Whereas you go and you read uh, Kant, even Plato, and at least it's a continuous narrative. Maybe you can't make sense of it, but you know, there's a continuous conversation. With Nietzsche, there's this additional challenge, especially with the aphoristic form, where he'll, the thoughts appear to come when they wish, and he leaves it to the reader to unite or provide or fill in gaps in the argument. This is peculiar to him, and it adds a degree of difficulty. On the other hand, it can make him very seductive. And so I think where we might go now, since we're on the subject of the aphoristic form, is the use and abuse of Nietzsche. And I have in mind that the aphorism lends itself peculiarly to taking Nietzsche out of context and putting slogans of his on a t-shirt or as the epigraph to your book and not really understanding anything about what he's saying other than, boy, that's a beautiful and moving aphorism. And so what in history, how has Nietzsche been both used and abused? He has a kind of storied, notorious, ugly history in Germany, which we can talk about. He then makes it to America via people like Mencken and others. But can you think of, or to your mind, does there stick out any sort of ways that Nietzsche has been used and abused, misunderstood? We should, uh, maybe I'll mention in this context, a lot of work had to be done after the Second World War to sort of rehabilitate Nietzsche, to make him palatable to contemporary audiences. And there's a man, a translator of Nietzsche, who is largely responsible for this named Walter Kaufman. So if people are interested in how Nietzsche got to America and who was it that rehabilitated Nietzsche after the Second World War because Nietzsche was a German, you can, I will say, find photographs of Adolf Hitler with his arm around Nietzsche's bust. You can find a picture of Nietzsche's sister giving Nietzsche's walking stick to Hitler. Nietzsche never knew Hitler. He was critical of anti-Semitism, at least from my point of view. Some scholars disagree with that. And uh, his sister was an anti-Semite and perverted a lot of his work in a certain way. And so all this said, Walter Kaufman then had to sort of come along and rehabilitate Nietzsche, translate his writings into English and, you know, sort of reintroduce him certainly to American audiences. But I'm curious if you 
have any reflections on the use and abuse, let's say, to take one of Nietzsche's own titles, of, of Nietzsche's writing? Yeah, I find this one of the hardest things in Nietzsche to get right is figuring out how to place him relative to his legacy. And the reason is, and you may disagree with this or just have your own comments, but I think there's basically two big problems in the reception of Nietzsche. On the one hand, there is what you might call the politicization, where Nietzsche is seen as the theorist of or justification for a very specific political program, which means not only Nazism, but all kinds of German nationalism, militarism, Richard Wagner's movement after Nietzsche's death. You know, there's a kind of sometimes a very specific type of politicization, and I would say a kind of over-politicization that has happened. On the other hand, the problem that emerged more so in the Anglo-Saxon, sort of Anglophone world after the Second World War, particularly thanks to Kaufman, as you mentioned, is the under-politicization, sometimes also known as the aestheticization. But the idea that Nietzsche is just about personal self-creation, just about kind of the private individual self-fashioning their own life, right? So we have these, what I consider to be kind of extreme overreactions, the, the over-politicization and the under-politicization. And the trick is to know exactly where to put him, but that's ultimately difficult because his writings, although we've mentioned they have this kind of extreme character, they're not prescriptive in any ordinary practical sense. At mm -hmm. least it's, you know, people who talk about Nietzsche's politics, there's a lot of useful work, but sometimes people wind up relying a lot on unpublished remarks, you know, because there he seems to be more pragmatic and more concrete. The published writings, we know he means, you know, he's anti-modern, anti-liberal, anti-democratic. Yes, but knowing exactly how to calibrate, how do we take his political position is tricky. And that ultimately is part of what makes it easy for people to appropriate him in any number of directions, mm -hmm. right? And, and so, you know, this, as I say, is something that I still struggle with. And the fact that there are so many different voices in Nietzsche, knowing exactly what he wanted people to take as the kind of practical message, the kind of political message, the cultural message. I know you'll have thoughts on this. I can add some of my own. But the first thing I just wanted to stress is that it's difficult to get right. And it's difficult, especially because some of the most influential interpretations of Nietzsche are kind of too far on either extreme. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. This is really good. I mean, I'd given some thought and I'm not by no means a lot of thought, and I'd like to give it more to Nietzsche's how do I say? I mean, you, you put it well. Nietzsche is, there's, there's few figures like this, you know, maybe Tocqueville, maybe Plato, where two seemingly opposed parties, and it doesn't have to be political parties, it can be two parties on the side of some intellectual issue, will both cite him as their authority. And so you find Nietzsche on the far right, especially today, you can find Nietzsche influential on thinkers on the far right. And yet you also find Nietzsche on the far left. And this is true of so few thinkers, and I'm trying to think of what it is in him that leaves him open to this or makes these folks who would disagree with one another both agree with him. Do you have any sense for that? So I do think that part of what's significant here is that he is, in a very broad sense, anti-modern. And people on the far left and far right are both people who feel that there's something really wrong with the modern world. By the way, this is another source of what gets students interested. The students who come up to me asking me about Nietzsche are usually people who feel in some vague general sense that there's something not quite right with the world as it is, right? And so 
that tends to attract people on the various extremes. And I think maybe in part, just because Nietzsche is such a great writer, people want to claim him, right? I mean, you know, he, how could you not want to when he's such a great writer? You know, there's something about that that makes you think, I'd rather have this guy on my side, given what a great writer he is, given how great some of his imagery is. But I do think it's that kind of general, but not very specific anti or somewhat vague at times in concrete, practical terms, anti-modernism. And Nietzsche has been blamed for this, the idea that he kind of stokes people's anti-modernism, but doesn't give them a real practical path about what to do with that feeling, mm-hmm. right? That he's, I think, been somewhat justly blamed for doing this, for stoking a kind of general sense of anti-modernism, but then not telling people, well, what do you do about that? And so arguably, it leaves him open to appropriation by people on the extremes who sympathize with the kind of gut-level anti-modernism, but don't have a lot of very helpful practical suggestions. Yeah. And when when Jeremy, by the way, when he says anti-modernism, he means something like Nietzsche's broad critiques of the features of the modern world. I mean, Nietzsche is a critic of of democracy as a regime. I mean, if you if you those of you who are interested, you can read his book Beyond Good and Evil, the fifth main part on the natural on the natural history of morals, and you can find the last aphorism is just extraordinarily critical of liberal democracy. Of course, Christianity, you know, the uh what he calls in uh, his untimely meditations cultivated Philistine, the person who just reads the newspaper and listens to whatever, you know, music is said to be deep, and then they may go to a play and come home and watch the news on the TV. And they appear to be educated, but they're really quite shallow. They lack a certain sort of spiritual, animating spiritual struggle in the soul. This person is characterized by Nietzsche in his later works as the last man, person who is merely concerned with the satisfaction of appetites of various kinds, base sort of animal appetites. You might think of our, you know, a culture that focuses on acquisition and money making and these sorts of things as the highest ends for human life. I think Nietzsche would find repugnant and turns in the kind of direction, or more in the direction of a certain sort of aristocracy, at least spiritual aristocracy, which we can talk a little bit more about. But I think it's important, I mean, since we we're talking about Nietzsche, we've talked about things that he's critical of, Socrates, Jesus, I wonder if we might mention not his influence on the far right and the far left, which which we've talked about, and certainly you know we don't nobody you know I, I just we did a podcast uh, on Heidegger recently, and we don't hide Heidegger's affiliation with the Nazi Party, and, and certainly should speak openly about Nietzsche's influence on certain movements that we find repugnant and distasteful today. But I wonder if we might talk about this great band of folks in the middle, the intellectuals who Nietzsche's had. A real influence on people. I mean, you know, the folks who come to mind, certainly Foucault, but as diverse as, say, Foucault and Leo Strauss and Martin Heidegger. And I'm sure there are others. Are there others that come to your mind? It's just people who have taken up Nietzsche and who have themselves left a mark. Well, I think also of many novelists, people like Thomas Mann, for instance, you know, that's another big area where he's been influential. Yeah. If you're interested in Nietzsche, you can find his fingerprints on an awful lot of the intellectual world. I mean, you can certainly, you can even find it, you know, I mentioned H.L. Mencken bringing Nietzsche to America. I was reading one of my favorite novelists is F. Scott Fitzgerald, and I was reading his letters to his daughter. And he tells his daughter that he's been reading Nietzsche and that she should read Nietzsche. And you're thinking, this is 1920 in America. And, you know, so, so he's, he's fascinating in this, in this respect. I wonder if we might sort of shift now for a moment. Let's talk a little bit about Nietzsche's books. 
you know, one of the things I do at the end of every podcast is ask people to recommend books that they think people should start with. But before we do that, I want to ask you, given how much Nietzsche you've read, is there a book, maybe not the one that people should start with, but is there a book that has left a particular imprint on you or has impressed you as a kind of quintessential Nietzsche writing? Well, let me see. So the course I took a seminar on was dealing with Beyond Good and Evil. So let me say something about where we're talking about Nietzsche's books in terms of what is the best fish hook. I can say there are three books that Nietzsche wrote deliberately as introductions to his thought. Beyond Good and Evil, The Genealogy of Morals, and Twilight of the Idols. They're increasingly shorter and more polemical. That's in a one way a virtue that they get shorter, but on the other hand, depending on who you are, it can be an obstacle that they get more and more polemical. But I think those three books, if you were to ask, what did Nietzsche write to be a kind of, this is a general introduction to my my thought, it's those three. Mm -hmm. But if I were to recommend just one to readers, I might recommend The Gay Science. And the reason I'd recommend The Gay Science is that it's roughly speaking from the middle of his career as an author. I don't just mean sometimes people talk about the middle period with Nietzsche. I don't mean that so much as, I mean, literally, it's a transition point in his writings because he's planning his most kind of famous and dramatic book, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, right? He's planning that. It's one of his most kind of captivating, also most difficult books. But so he's planning Zarathustra, but he's not, he's not quite giving you that yet. But he, so he's writing in a somewhat both calmer and I think a bit more accessible form in the gay science. So mm-hmm. the gay science, you know, an aphoristic work, which means it's characteristic of most of his writings. It's less obscure than, than a book like Zarathustra, but it gives you, I think, a great overview of a lot of his main concerns, main, uh, main thoughts as an author. Yeah, the other interesting thing about the gay science that I think proves, or at least points to what you say, is that Nietzsche returned to the gay science and added the fifth book of the gay science after he'd written Beyond Good and Evil. That's right. And you also get in there intimations of his most kind of famous doctrines, the will to power, eternal return. He doesn't quite use those phrases always, but he clearly has them in mind and he wants to get people thinking in that direction. So I think it's really helpful kind of as an introduction to his thought for that reason, too. Yeah, we should let people know that it also contains a prelude in rhymes yes. <laughs> and, and, the, and their songs at the yes. end of it, right? Yeah, their songs at the end. So, the, But this is the character of Nietzsche's writing, is that he's written this great book of philosophy and these aphorisms, and then there are songs in it too. And you're not going to find Kant singing songs. And I think that, well, maybe he sang songs, but he didn't put them in his books. And so I think that's worth thinking about, about in Nietzsche. I have to say for my own experience and this I suspect this cuts to the difference between our two pathways to the same author. The book that really got me, I mean it wasn't the first book I read, but the one that I think probably made me um fall for Nietzsche as one does is um what appears to be an autobiography of sorts called Eke Homo, how one becomes what one is. And I think the reason is because you see a man writing words in the manner that he does, or at least I did, and you see a mind that's as powerful as his. Mine is certainly not powerful enough, for example, to challenge Socrates or all of Christianity. And I think, well, that, that's an extraordinary mind. And that mind also has with it, uh, or at least comes with an extraordinary rhetorical gifts. Who the heck is this guy? But the interesting thing is when you turn to Eke Homo, what you find is, I mean, a kind of autobiography, except he lies about himself a lot in it on purpose. And subtitles such as why I am so clever, why I am so wise, 
why I write such good books, and then why I am a destiny. And so this man, you know, um, claims in a way to to be the greatest human being, or, you know, he says Zarathustra, his book, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, is the, the greatest gift given to humanity. That's not a modest, you know, that's not a modest assertion. <laughs> so I think that that book is interesting, largely because one has to make sense of precisely what he's, what he's trying to do there. But if you're interested in Nietzsche the man, there are all kinds of biographies, but I suspect his autobiography will, will intrigue people. Yeah, and just a word on that, because I think it gets at something which is important, both about Nietzsche's thought and about his influence, which is that Nietzsche is a philosopher who talks a lot about himself, and he's very concerned with the self yeah. in a way that other philosophers haven't been. And it's part of what has given him this influence on people like modern novelists, is that unlike some older philosophers, there's a big kind of fascination with the self and yourself and exploring yourself in a way that's distinctive to his thought or something fairly distinctive his thought. We might talk about Montaigne as a possible precursor, but it's pretty distinctive to him kind of in the history of philosophy. And it's one reason why he's influenced so many people subsequently is there's this notion of yourself as a real topic of interest. Yeah, that is unique about Nietzsche. He talks, you know, I mean, you don't, you don't see Plato talking about himself you know, all the time. Nietzsche will come up in all of his works in some way. You know, talking about Eke Homo makes me think about, I don't remember if it was Strauss who said this or something along these lines or who it was, but that Nietzsche is a product of the Western tradition and therefore, in a, in a way, the peak of the Western tradition and yet the destroyer of the Western tradition at the same time. So he marks its peak and its um, gradual slope downwards right. in a certain way. He's one of its most profound products at the same time that he is perhaps its most profound critic. And I wonder if you also see that in Nietzsche. Yeah, I think there's a lot to that. And the way I think about this, which is contestable, but the way I've come to think about it is that Nietzsche, I think Nietzsche would say, I'm the person who can accomplish what all the people before me, philosophers, theologians, whomever, I can accomplish what they've been trying to accomplish, but I can see why they were all going about it the wrong way. And another way of putting that is Nietzsche is not, as he is sometimes taken or as he can sometimes sound like, he's not an enemy of truth. He's not an enemy of philosophy. He just thinks that people who have been pursuing these things have gone about it the wrong way. That's right. Right? And so that's what makes him, gives him this unusual position. He's saying, you know, I'm a philosopher too, and I'm, I'm someone, but I'm someone who can see everyone else's errors and show you how to really get at truth in a way that no one else has understood. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And if, if you're interested in that and watching Nietzsche do that, I, I recommend to people, you can correct me on this, the first uh, main part of Beyond Good and Evil called The Prejudices of the right. Philosophers. And this, uh, that's an interesting part too, which we should have mentioned earlier when we were talking about the main kind of ideas in Nietzsche's thought, because one of the, I mean, you mentioned the, the question of meaning, and perhaps this is identical to that, but Nietzsche understands himself to be that philosopher who inquires in, about a question that no philosopher heretofore has inquired about, and, and they've all taken for granted, and, and that is, why do we want truth? Why is truth valuable to us? Why not lies, he says. And then he goes on to show many circumstances or scenarios, both superficial and quite deep, where human beings seem to prefer lies. And the reason they prefer lies is often because truth is, in Nietzsche's view, and this is a major theme, harmful to life, whatever that means. It, uh, knowing the truth is often, in a way, spiritually and perhaps even physically 
detrimental, such that organic life has some odd agonistic relationship with truth. The more truth you know, the more hardy you have to be to bear it. And he talks about that himself. And he's got a great essay called The Use and Disadvantages of History for Life, where he talks about the way in which precise and accurate historical knowledge, were we to be able to have it, might actually destroy an entire people. And so it's, you know, Nietzsche is really concerned with, um, with the question of the value of truth. And so you know that we, we probably should have should have mentioned that. Well, we only have a few minutes left, and I think we both talked about the books in your case, the gay science in mine, Eke Homo, that lured us in or compelled us to take Nietzsche a little bit more seriously. Are there books that you would recommend listeners read? Uh, maybe the one book or two books that are for somebody who has no idea who this guy is. They've heard us talking about all this crazy stuff with the lack of meaning and his perversion by the far right, the Nazis and the far left and Foucault, and just who the heck is this guy? Is there a book that one might start with to kind of get a better handle on this? Well, I would definitely recommend people read Paul Franco's book, Nietzsche's Enlightenment, right? Because that's a great view of Nietzsche, the so-called middle period works, but showing how those middle period works fit into his broader corpus. And I think Franco is really great at approaching Nietzsche with a kind of level head, showing what a lot of the kind of big issues that overlap his entire career, how those come out of that book. So, and again, I think Franco's helpful because he takes such a level-headed approach, which yeah. Nietzsche often doesn't seem to, right? Right. But I think Franco gives you a great, I mean, it focuses on the middle period works, which deserve more attention. But I think that Franco is a great kind of inlet to how to just approach Nietzsche with a level head and understand what a lot of those big issues are, big questions are. Well, on that on that note, I mean, you left out a book by yourself that I feel like That's might right. be a candidate. Can you tell us a little bit about, and I love Paul Franco, so if you're listening, but, Paul, I'm not trying but, to, but can you tell us a little bit about your approach to Nietzsche? Because I think you take an innovative approach through these prefaces. Can you, yeah. can, t- can you tell us about the prefaces and why your book is introductory in a whole new way? Yeah. So the challenge of Nietzsche, I subtitled it, How to Approach His Thought, which is a bit older than it should be, I guess, in a in Nietzschean spirit. But what I had in mind there is Nietzsche does something really unusual as an author. One we've already mentioned. He writes an autobiography where he gives you an overview of all of his earlier books. But he also did something unusual, which is a number of his books that he published over the course of his career, four or five of them, years after he first published them, he went back and gave them new prefaces. And the prefaces are all kind of autobiographical. And he, in fact, he did this as part of a year of his life, basically writing quasi-autobiographical prefaces to a lot of his older books. So one of the questions that kind of drove me to write my own book was to say, okay, what is Nietzsche saying about his own career and how he understood his development as a thinker? So what I try to do in that book is basically make sense of a lot of these autobiographical writings of Nietzsche and use Nietzsche as a guide to Nietzsche, right? And, and see, okay, because I think these have been overlooked a bit and they haven't been given quite enough attention by scholars. A lot of this kind of, I mean, Echo Home has gotten a bit more attention, not as much as it deserves, as you suggest. But the prefaces, I think, have gotten even less attention, right? But he put, he spent a good chunk of time, the better part of a year, writing autobiographical prefaces for all these older books. And I think he's showing you something very unusual about himself, which is that his thought evolved over the course of his career as an author, right? In a way that isn't clearly true of Plato or Hegel in the same way, certainly not of Hobbes. It's not clearly true in the same way or to the same degree. And Nietzsche is kind of making a character out of himself and saying, look, you can look at my saga. You can look at my 
my kind of journey as an author, and I'm going to show you how to walk through my career and see how anyone who's wrestling with some of these questions about meaning, about the death of God, about our culture, how they're going to kind of live with those questions and think through those questions over a period of time. He's setting himself up as a kind of character to look at. So this is what I try to do in the book, is show how Nietzsche kind of sets him, in my book, is I, I try to show how Nietzsche sets himself up as a character and kind of maps out his own journey as an exemplary one for other people who might be wrestling with some of the same questions that he wrestled with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's very good. And frankly, it's a really great idea for a book. The prefaces are neglected, as you say, and they're a great pathway into to Nietzsche's thought. Well, look, I want to thank you for being with us today. If you're interested, uh, everybody should check out Jeremy's book, The Challenge of Nietzsche. If you're interested in Nietzsche, go check out Eke Homo. Go look at the gay science. Pick up Beyond Good and Evil. These are some of the big works in his corpus that uh, are often taught in universities. All right, Jeremy, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. The Free Mind Podcast is produced by the Benson Center for the Study of Western Civilization at the University of Colorado at Boulder. You can email us feedback at freemind at colorado.edu or visit us online at colorado.edu slash center slash Vincent.